This is the Social Leader Podcast, inspired by entrepreneurs, founders, faith leaders, innovators, volunteers, and visioneers from every walk of life. They are the social venturers among us, those who crave the entrepreneurial adventure of moving beyond charity in order to integrate and then operationalize their social priorities. Social leaders are the true leaders among us who forge sustainable solutions in order to solve our community's most tangled problems. Hey, welcome to the podcast, episode number 32. You are going to absolutely love the guest that I've got to bring on today. But before we get to that, real quickly, I want to let you know that this podcast is presented by Reconciliation Services. We are a nonprofit social venture here in Kansas City, Missouri, located at 31st and Troost. And our mission is to transform Troost Avenue, turning it from a dividing line into a gathering place in order to reveal the strength of all. And if you love what you hear on today's show, and if you want to learn how to lead with greater social impact, then I want to invite you to go to thesocialleader.org, thesocialleader.org. Check it out. That is our brand new e-course, three modules, two and a half hours of cutting edge leadership training, where you're going to learn to have a social entrepreneurial mindset in module one, you're going to learn to root out bias in yourself and in your team in module two. And in module three, you're going to learn how to have a trauma-informed and strength-based leadership approach. So go check it out, thesocialleader.org. Well, friends, today I am super excited to welcome a friend, a colleague in Kansas City, Dr. Rodney Smith. Doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you, Father Justin. I'm glad to be with you today. Absolutely glad to have you. It's an honor. I've gotten to uh, be trained by you when you and your wife through Sophic Solutions have offered the Racial Equity Institute training. And I've gotten to have you come with your wife uh, and train our board and our staff last January, right before everything went crazy with COVID. We had some wonderful training with you all. And Now I get to have you on the podcast, and I want to invite people who might be listening live right now on Facebook or on YouTube, definitely feel free to comment during the show, and we'll see if we can bring you in. Okay, well, uh, Dr. Smith, tell me a little bit about yourself. For those who don't know you, first of all, let's get out of the way that you and I have a crossover. I was at Belmont University. That's my alma mater. I'm a has-been in the music industry who never was, (laughs) but you were there and you've been at UMKC. You've really been involved with higher education for a long time. Tell us a little bit about your leadership journey. Yeah, well, believe it or not, man, uh, my undergrad degree is in architecture. So how did I get an education? Um, (laughs) Uh, I left architecture shortly after well, I worked at a firm in Atlanta um, just prior to the Olympics coming to Atlanta. Um, and then, you know, if I'm honest, I recognized and realized that architecture um, was a selfish dream for myself. Hmm. Um, it was something that I was doing for me. I grew up watching the Brady Bunch and saw Mike Brady being an architect. And I thought it was a cool profession. Okay. <laughs> you know? I've never heard anybody say they chose their profession based on the Brady Bunch, but that's, well, that's a new one. I like it. And, you know, I thought it was prestigious and all those kinds of things. And so, it is, yeah. uh, you know, and, I, I, and, you know, architects are great people. I'm not suggesting that it's not a wonderful profession. You are in a building right now that was designed by an architect. I'm in a house right now that was designed by an architect. But I think that architecture just wasn't my calling, you know. Um, and so I ended up back at my alma mater, Morris Brown College, working in the admissions office as a recruiter. The education bug bit me then, uh, you know, helping students realize a dream. Many of them thought that they couldn't realize, you know, by mm-hmm. going to get a college degree. Um, and again, that education bug bit me and, you know, uh, ended up moving to Nashville to work on a graduate degree in education. And so I decided at this point that education was going to be my thing. And so I uh, went to Tennessee State University, was working at Fisk University at the time. And, you know, as they, as they, as they often say, and the, the rest is history. And so I ended, ended up doing a master's degree at 
Tennessee State, as well as a doctoral degree at Tennessee State. Um, shortly after, it landed at Belmont. Um, <laughs> and yep. again, you know, it was just one of those deals. And when we were leaving, um, when we were leaving Kansas City, my wife's job um, is what moved us here to Kansas City. She was working with the YMCA at the time. And, you know, I was the trailing spouse, if you will. <laughs> and, you know, but having a, a doctoral degree in education, I thought perhaps I can land somewhere. And UMKC is where I landed um, and uh, loved it there. But, you know, if I'm honest, most of my experience as far as cutting my teeth in the education community, as you can tell, I've been in higher education for 25 years now. It's been at a private school environment. You know, all those schools I name, except for UMKC, were all private schools. And so. Right. Well, uh, and now you just accepted a brand new position. You're now the VP of Access and Engagement for right. William Jewell College, which, by the way, another touch point. My wife, until I stole her away to Belmont, my my wife, Jody was at uh, William Jewell College. I think she lived in Simple Hall. Oh, wow. I'm not <laughs> sure which. Shout yeah. out to William Jewell. But there's, there's a lot about your path, though, that I could really see connecting because even your architecture training, if there's one thing that I, I, I think I could say about you is that you are a deep systems thinker and that you understand like the bones of a problem mm. or you're willing to get at the root of an issue. And I think that architecture training probably has a lot of corollary to that higher ed application where you are now at William Jewell. Well, you said that nicely, man. You really did. No, you actually absolutely did. No. And it makes me think about, and I often say this, it makes me think about, you know, an, an architect is considered a master builder, right? Right. Um, but you, in order to do that, you have to put in any building that you, you erect, there's, there has to be a foundation, right? The bones. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate the compliment and with, with regard to, you know, being a systems thinker. But yeah, I guess in, a, in large measure, what I've been doing for the last 25 years of my life in the educational world is um, studying the foundation of our country, <laughs> studying, right. right? right. And so whatever you build it on is what will serve as the foundation. And so um, many of us have been, um, I don't know, lack of better words, fooled in, into believing that our foundation is something that is not that it, you know our country is built on these laudable principles of justice and equality and all those wonderful words but the truth of the matter it's not you well know? let's go further into that unpack that for somebody who's listening and talk about how that relates to the work that you're doing now at William Jewell in in equity and diversity but first start with unpacking what you just said if our country is not built on uh, apple pie and turkey <laughs> and you know what what is it built on and and what what do we need to be looking to rodney well you know if you if you go back and look at the founding of this country starting at, at jamestown you know virginia 1607 you, and you start to see how things were um situated um it was based upon uh, the pseudo system of race it is a system, this, this notion, I, I, one of the definitions of racism I use is um, a system of power based on the pseudoscience of race. Mm. And if you look at the foundation of our country, it is about power and who gets to maintain power throughout, you know, the existence of this country. So that's what this country is built on. And, and it took us human beings who had class solidarity in many cases and divided us based upon this false and specious classification that we call race and say right. you, you 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 know you you're from you're from uh, you're a dutchman and you're a scotsman and so you look similar so i want to put you all in one category but i'm gonna take these africans and put them in another category because you right. can't you can distinguish that you you can't distinguish a, a dutchman from a scotsman but you can sure distinguish you know those Europeans from Africans, and so right. now so you get white and black as these there false you, constructs, there you go. right? There you go. And so there then you again, go. you know, I remember also in in training that we've been in together and that you've offered, there were even times when very poor whites were trying to build solidarity with 
uh, enslaved Africans as well as indentured servants who early on, even before slavery, there were also indentured servants here, white right. and, and black. And when that solidarity started to build, they, you know, our forefathers wrote laws and they define what whiteness is. And that, that whiteness gave certain legal rights and legal privileges. I mean, this isn't this isn't uh, something to be debated. This is Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, this is history, right? That's right. Facts. You know, right. it's the truth. And so that's exactly the, the, the mission, the movement that I've been wanting to be a part of is getting us to telling the truth. We, you know, we want reconciliation, but I believe that truth has to precede reconciliation. Truth has to come first before yeah. we can ever reconcile. Because the truth of the matter is we've been at racial opposition in this country far longer then we've been at racial reconciliation or alliance or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, and, and so, but, but in order for us to really truly get there, we have to be honest. We yeah. have to be honest, at, you know, back to this notion of the foundation of this country and what it was built upon uh, to your point, you know, mm. you know, we, this, this terminology of being a, a, a white man and what wasn't a white man didn't come along at the beginning of the country, it was it, it was created by men. In fact, the Virginia House of Burgesses begin to find a white man as you know the one who has no African or Indian blood whatsoever, except for the male descendants of John Roth and Pocahontas. <laughs> you know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. You got the Pocahontas exception. If you right. wanna, if you don't know what we're talking about, and you're listening online, I got two things to tell you. One, Google Pocahontas exception. Two. Go out there and look at, uh, go to Sophic Solutions Group. I'm going to put that up there. This is your website, sophicsolutionsgroup.com. Great resources there. But also you can uh, you can look at uh, Racial Equity Institute out of North Carolina. And I, I want to talk about this because you uh, and Stephanie, your wife, by the way, everybody does know Stephen E. Smith. I know you talked about being the husband that moved with your wife. Every, I knew about Stephen E. definitely before I met you. She's a that, no, I know for sure. Friend. But I brought you on the podcast, though, right? So we've got that. We've got something. No, but um, what I wanted to get to though was that you've been doing a lot of work to unpack that history with Kansas City in particular, and you've been yeah. convening, whether it be with the chamber and business groups through the lens of, of equity, you've been convening these groups and bringing in the REI Institute and really unpacking this history. How's that, how's that gone? How's that been received in Kansas City? Because all this stuff that we're just skipping rocks over the surface uh, of the water here on, this is pretty heavy stuff. I mean, it was, it was two days of tears and, and gritted yeah. teeth and it's yeah. heavy. But, you know, Kansas City has proven me right in that in my, in my philosophy and my grandmother, mother throughout the years would say things like, when people know better, they do better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think a big part of us, I, I think for real, uh, our, our history books in, 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 in school, grade school, did us a huge disservice and not really being honest and telling us the truth about our institution. Because I don't know how many times when we have this conversation about, you know, the true aspects of history or kind of analyzing history through a racial lens. Um, and, and people often say, well, I didn't know that. Why didn't I learn that in school? Because, you know, our schools didn't do it. But as a result, I, I, I see people leaning into this conversation. Now you talk about that yeah. two days of, you know, really deep stuff and losing tears, but, you know, we've had, 600 plus people that are going through that training that you just described. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and not only that, we had those 600 people still convene themselves periodically throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And we unpack, and you, you've been a part of these discussions, and we mm -hmm. unpack aspects of our own internalized racial oppression, is it, for an example. One of the aspects of understanding racism is understanding how racism lives within you. Right. You know, often we try to, you know, scapegoat it and put it outside of ourselves. But I think the real work happens in this introspection, this this reflective work that how because we can't avoid it. It's not, you, you know, this thing called racism in America is not you can't opt out of it. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's, it's the waters in which we all swim in. Yeah. But what let's let's tackle something here. And I don't want to put you on the spot. But look, our 
our current administration says that these racial inequities and and, and uh, systemic racism is is untrue, and we've put training on hold and and yeah. you know 1619 and these other things are anti-American propaganda. Look, <laughs> what what are we what are we really up against with that? Why why are we facing that when yeah. it's as clear as what's on the end of our nose? Yeah, I well. Mean, to, yeah, to, to many of us, and I think to even them too. But I think that at the same time, <laughs> I think at the same time that there, there, many of us are confused about what racism really is in our society. We've only equated to individual acts of hate. We only equated to the hate, the known hate mongers in our society. You know, people like the skinheads, the neo Nazis, the new, the proud boys, if you will, people who, who say that they want this to be a white nation. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, we scapegoat and say those are the only bad apples in society. But the truth of the matter is this notion of race and racism in its true sense of the word, the sociopolitical definition of the word lives in all of us because we live in a racialized society. And, you know, and so but but, the, the, you know, the piece you're talking about with the, the administration because the, the truth of the matter is they're after power. Remember the, the original definition that I used with regard to what racism is? Yeah, give that again. Yeah, the, the, uh, a, a system of power based on the pseudoscience of race. See, I think you're right. I think you could take every single person who is, is a, you know, vocalizing bigotry, every single person who is committing yes. acts of, of hatred, you could put them in a SpaceX rocket and shoot them up to the moon. And I think what we would find is that we would still have the so-called achievement gap. We'd still have the so-called, you know, uh, uh, pipeline to prison from school. You, right. You'd still have uh, frankly, you'd still have gender pay inequity, right? You'd still have these things. That's right. And, and I think it gets back to the architecture comment, doesn't it? That these things are actually not just moral, spiritual, but they're factual. In other words, they're built in to the law and the fabric that we kind of make our clothing out of, right? Right. See, yeah, being nice won't just won't get us out of it. We can't nice our way out of racism. We're good yeah. at nice in the Midwest, though. We like nice. <laughs> Because because being mean didn't put us into it alone. Right. Being mean alone, it was just it was strategic. You know what I mean? It was hmm. that's what we mean when we say systemic and structural. It was built into the the very fabric of this country, the laws, the found the foundation of this country. At the beginning of you know, we talked about when the House of Burgesses or Virginia House of Burgesses started. You know, the, trying to define what a white man is, and after 1607, that, 1609, somewhere in there, right? 1691, 1691. Okay. Well, yeah. After that, you know, 1607 was the founding of Jamestown. Okay. And then, you know, then you had what well, I think uh, the Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. And, okay. Um, I have some of a photographic memory for numbers. Somewhere. Remind me not to do facts with a PhD ever wow. again on the podcast. That's not. But I, I, I mean, I do this every day. So, you know, um, it's 1691 is when. But a, after that, you start seeing laws specifically benefiting those who would be classified as white and those who were not classified as white would not benefit from these laws that are created into our system. Right. right. And so it, it is intended to keep power, money, resources, benefits. Um, and so, again, it's it's a, a system of power based on the pseudoscience of race, because, you know, we know race is a specious, it's a false, it's a social construct created yeah. by men. This yeah. idea of black and white. I mean, you know, genetically, Justin, you and I could be more like, you know, genetically than Stephen and I. Stephen, you know, both we're both African-American people. Right. It, there's no scientific significance you know, there's no biological significance to race, right? Other than our exterior, our phenotype, you know, skin color, hair texture, eye, you know, stuff well, like that. Let, let, let's take this conversation and fast forward though and, and apply it because you just took a job as the vice president of access and engagement at a school, William Jewell, that I love. But if my facts are right, and this was a quick internet search, but you know, the student population is 78, 78.6% white. Only 5% Black or African-American, 5.9% Latinx. 
The faculty is 94.9% white. Now, give or take some percentages, and I know you've been doing a lot of consulting there, but how do we take all of this that we've been talking about and how do you apply it in a student body that is so white? How do you begin to unpack this and, yeah. and where do you begin in your new job? I mean, it sounds like a huge job, Rodney. Yeah, no, you're right. It is a huge job. But I think we start with having conversations very similar to the conversation we're having now with being honest about the foundation of our country and how it it spreads on to what we are today, because we can't continue to try to divorce ourselves from that history, divorce ourselves from that past, hmm. because it contributes directly to how we live and how our lives are situated. The institutions that we you know, are part of, they are built upon that system. You know what I mean? And so, again, that's what I mean when you, when I say you can't opt out of this thing um, of systemic racism that's everywhere. You can't opt out and say, well, let's get it out of there. Let's root it out of. Right. You, can't, you can't root it out because it, it's just a part of the system. It's like saying, you know, you you bake the cake um, and you naturally have to put butter in the cake. And then you after you finish baking the cake, it's like I want to root the butter out. You cannot get the butter out of the cake, you know? So well, how do we start? How do we have this conversation? Your question is we begin um, that at, at that point, but then we also educate that, that 94%, you know, faculty that's white, because we know that that faculty is not going to change overnight as far as the demographics. Sure. But until we change, we have to inform these people about how do you create more inclusive environments in the classroom? How do you create a better sense of belonging for those students who will um, be different from you, have who come from a different background than you? You know, how do you create the sense of belonging for students? How do you how do you draw the circle wider to include more perspectives than let's just be honest than a euro than a Eurocentric perspective, a Eurocentric curriculum? So, what you are know? some tactics that you think you might? use or what are some some programs or something how do you how do you actualize that i mean because college campuses can be contentious places i mean it's a place of self-expression of self-exploration you got people on their own living undergrads on their own for the first time yeah um, what do you do besides just workshops and discussions in order to move the needle on an equity lens at a place like william jewell or anywhere well, and we're asking right now, we had a conversation just yesterday with faculty members. We're asking faculty to include a, you know, an inclusion statement in their in their syllabus and, and, and sort of unpack the syllabus and sort of unpack, you know, some of the readings that you're asked students to read in your class and some of the literature that you're going to ask students to read. And then even own up to the fact and be honest and own up and say, well, I recognize you know, say something like this. And for an example, I recognize that much of the literature that I'm asking you to read will probably come from a Eurocentric perspective. And perhaps even more granular than that, it's probably going to come from a white male perspective. But we invite you and we will do our best to include more voices than 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 just a white perspective. I mean, because if we think about the the canon, if you will, of right. academia, it is filled with Eurocentric scholars and and scientists and some pseudoscientists <laughs> as well. You know, if we're if we're really honest, but I think we're getting to a point of society where we're being a little bit more honest about that, and we're now infusing more than just. In fact, just yesterday as well, I I, I got a I got wind that we've been funded to help start a um, a, a collection in the library. That will include, um, you know, authors and writers of color. Uh, so we call, yeah, we're calling it the Equity and Inclusion um, Collection, and yeah. we don't we don't have a name for it yet. But you know, many of the pieces and many many of the publications that you would be familiar with that we utilize in REI. Right. I, I'm hoping to infuse on on, on Jules campus. So I think that just raising awareness is the first step. I mean, you can't get yeah. to acknowledging something unless you have a general interest in cultivating an awareness about something, you know? And yeah. one of the words I've heard you use in another podcast, uh, when you were talking about your work there at Jewel and, and in general, is you use this idea of radical inclusivity. So mm -hmm. I'm hearing you talk about inclusivity and the canon of study, inclusivity and who's teaching, who's going to be in the room. 
but what makes something radically inclusive? What does that mean to you? Yeah, well, I think it is transformative and transforming um, what we have seen things as before and, and, and really flipping it on its head. So in other words, let me give you an example of my mind, what I'm thinking about when I say that. We often, when, you, when, when I say, um, if we're going to study music and I say classical music, you, you have certain um, writers and certain types of music that automatically pops into your head. And you're thinking about the, you know, the, the Beethovens of the world. But what about what about if we sh shift or what if we included other forms of music in the in this notion of classical music? I mean, we live in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. I think that we have a classical form of music here in Kansas City called jazz. Mm -hmm. We just don't call it classical music, but it's it is originated <laughs> in America. It's the only, you know, and so it is classical form of music. So we you're saying to, that radical inclusivity means that we need to question how we define things and it, maybe redefine things. Is that I, what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a part of that's a part of it. Um, and, and, and radical radical inclusivity is also really working hard to um, infuse equity into what we do. And, 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 and I'll make the distinction between equality. And a lot of times we conflate. Mm -hmm equity with equality and equality just as it sounds you give people equal think equity has a clear uh, eye toward inequity so you have to have a really good understanding of history mm -hmm. in, in order to be really equitable you know what i mean because some would say you know by giving people some people more then that's not being fair well historically you're getting some people more that wasn't fair then y you know what i mean so now Equity has to again. Equity is in direct relation to inequity, and that's a tough that's a tough um, concept for many people to understand because if they see me getting what I need in order for us to succeed, and they don't get the same thing that, that they say that we're being unfair. Yeah, you know what I mean. So I, I want us to, you know, really think hard about. So I think that that is that is indeed radical. Uh, unfortunately, it is radical to think about equity in that way because um, think about um, I, I often use ADA compliance laws as an example mm. of, of equity, where now we have ramps to get into buildings um, and we have the, the push button. You know, and we've been using those a lot since we're in the middle of a pandemic. We push the button and right. the doors automatically open. Uh, and you go into a building that has multiple floors, there's an elevator. The, the, the point that I'm making is those of us who are able-bodied, we use those mechanisms all the time, though we don't need them. Right. You know, we can walk upstairs, up the stairs, but we use ramps. We use the push-button doors because we can open the door for it, but, mm. and we definitely use elevators. So the point I'm making is equity typically is going to be beneficial to everybody, <laughs> even those who don't need the equitable mechanism that's being put in place. So mm -hmm. too frequently, we think of equity as a subtraction equation where it actually typically is a multiplication equation. It's going to benefit those who the, the mechanism wasn't intended to benefit. Mm. And, and in many ways, that too is radical in a, how, we, how we see things and how we see history and how we, how we interpret history. And how, you know, I think that's radical. So this idea of radical equity, though, we can talk about it on a systems level or institutional level for sure. But really, it sounds like when it really drills down to it, it has to do with my heart, your heart, her heart, his heart, and the way that we view the world. So, so here's my question for you. When you're thinking about education, you know, obviously, I think we would agree you have to think about educating the whole person. It's not just the mind. We're talking about the spiritual life, the physical life, the, you know, the thought life. How do we, if we want as leaders to embrace this idea of radical inclusivity, what role does internal work, my own internal work, mm -hmm. what role does that have for each of us if we're going to reach that radical inclusivity? Like, what should I be doing? What should you be doing mm -hmm. on the internal side? Yeah, so I agree with you that it is hard work. Right. It's, you know, at the end of the day, but it's also handwork. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is also 
head work, like we said. So it's a, it's a combination of a lot of different things. And so I, I think we should what we should do is um, begin the work of better informing ourselves and then also aligning ourselves with people who are similar to what you and I, how we became friends, you and I are doing. Um, aligning yourself with other individuals who are after the same things and who are after this notion of equity and who are uh, educating themselves. So what do you have to do? Yeah, you have to engage in the conversation. And I think it starts, I think earlier before we went on air, you were asking me about, you know, how do, how do, you, how do we help people get these conversations started? Right, yeah. You know, I think you have to acknowledge that this conversation has indeed been a taboo conversation and we're not good at having this conversation. We have to acknowledge that first. (laughs) And I think we also have to just put it on the table and acknowledge the fact that most of us are uncomfortable having this conversation. It is a uncomfortable conversation. We have, we feel a level of discomfort around the conversation mainly because we're not accustomed to having a conversation. That's where the discomfort comes from. And because for, 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 for so long, you know, simply talking about race, people thought that made you a racist. So we have to switch that and we have to change that. But I think just acknowledging, getting the truth out on the table first is saying that, you know, who's, who's uncomfortable about this conversation? Yeah, I, I am. And it's being vulnerable in that way and being honest. Is that honest. the role of the leader right there? Is that moment so. that you just described saying, we're going to talk about something. It's going to be uncomfortable. Okay, we start talking about it. Okay, stop. Who's uncomfortable? Is yeah. that the role of the leader? Or I, do I have to be a professional facilitator in DE&I matters and hire you to do that? Or should no, every leader do that? Every leader should do that. And that's where you know you get into this. One of my philosophies is another one of my philosophies as well that I think we should move away from seeking to be culturally competent, but we should be culturally humble. Cultural humility is what we should be after. Right. You know, um, it, you know, again, because I know that may sound counterintuitive as well, because, you know, why would you not want to be confident in the thing? Because, you know, we're we're a society that you have to be competent. But I think in some regards that, that this, this strive for competency has crippled us because the truth of the matter is with regard to culture, we can never be competent. It's right. too dynamic. If it's not yours. If it's not <laughs> yours, it's, you can never be in it. Even, even if it's yours, even as an African-American man, there's some things that I don't know about the African-American community. And I, I'm always learning about because it's not a monolith. It's not you know, one thing, one size fits all. So that's why I lead towards humility, which also insinuates an exchange. I have to be humble enough to recognize that my culture is not the superior culture that there are other cultures that we should be all in the circle together because competency and then also competency, you know, sometimes people who don't feel competent, then they mm-hmm. don't engage to your point. Then they, they, they won't admit to the fact that they won't even be able at, they won't be at the table to admit that, look, I'm uncomfortable because they've already written off the conversation in the first place. I'm not joining that conversation. I'm not competent enough to be a part of that conversation. I'm walking over here. Okay, let's get, I want to get really drilled down on a, on a moment because I think a lot of leaders face this. Let's say a leader is brave enough to open up this conversation about equity, brave enough to say, Hey, we're going to have an uncomfortable conversation, start the conversation, then brave enough to say, is anybody uncomfortable? Now what happens? Crickets, nobody, (laughs) right? So what do you do as a leader in that space when you know people are uncomfortable? You don't want to out somebody to where they've got to be overly vulnerable in a way mm-hmm. that puts them in a, in a dangerous position. You also want to be very aware of things like HR law, <laughs> all of the other things, the constructs that are around protecting people. But what do you do in that moment? Do you, do you stand a certain way? Do you say a certain <laughs> thing? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm being real nitty gritty because look, I've been in that position. Yeah. I know what I do, but what do you do? What do you recommend a leader that you're coaching do in that moment? Yeah, I, I think you, as a leader, you know, a leader goes first. The leader is in front. The leader goes first. And so in, in a situation like that, 
first of all, I, I'm I've learned I've I've grown, especially as a college professor, being in the classroom. I've grown to become comfortable with silence, though. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I've grown to be comfortable with this awkward silence, and I've even equated that a lot of times to I, I've often said to my students that silence is the sound of your thoughts. Um, <laughs> that you're thinking about it. I, I I I choose to see the positive spin of it. That not people that just not wanting to share. I think that they're thinking about what they want to share. And awkward silence is not so awkward anymore for me. Um, but you know, back to the original point. I think um, I think leaders have to lead in those situations. Leaders have to be the one who would share their vulnerability and share where they've grown as, as well. It's like, look, I used to believe this way and now I don't believe that anymore. You know what I mean? And just be perfectly honest and, and do away and get away, you know, as Robin D'Angelo would say, this good, bad binary. That yeah. it does not make you a bad person that you used to believe that. No, it's because you were ta- taught that. You were socialized in a society that taught you that. Right. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't make you a bad person for believing that you used to believe something that is not so good about people and not so good about humanity. And I now you talk about that idea of the vulnerability virtue that there is. I mean, there's over vulnerability, right? There's the oversharing yeah. guy. We all know that person. It's like, yeah. come on, you said that? Well, what are you talking about? But then there is that proper moment, right? Where the yeah. leader, the right person in the right place at the right time steps out in vulnerability and says, yeah, growing up. I used to hear and even used to laugh at these jokes that I didn't even think were racist, but they were now that I think about it. Right. And you, you, you get honest about it. That's right. Say it. Yeah, exactly. You just own it that you didn't know. And now that, you know, like I said earlier in the beginning of the conversation, my mom used to say, when you know better, you do better. Mm -hmm. You you know, you, you know better now. So you're doing better now. I mean, when I was a kid growing up in South Carolina, I was, uh, I'm, I'm dating myself. I was the age of the, the era of the Dukes of Hazards. Okay, I'm, I'm with you. You were, right? But remember the I Dukes of Hazzard. I always wanted to go in the station wagon through the window, like <laughs> on the Dukes of Hazard. Mom exactly. would never let me do that. <laughs> the, the star of the show was the car. Mm-hmm. And the, on the top of the car, you remember the, the, the top angle? It was a Confederate yes, flag. Yes, I do. Right? I remember riding my bike doing the sound. You know, yeah, <laughs> right? right? Exactly. Celebrating Confederacy as a black man in the South. But I didn't know as a, as a young kid, I didn't know what really what the Confederate flag meant and what it stood for. Mm. Right? But now I do. And so I don't I don't celebrate that anymore. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And so just be honest with the things that you've grown with. I mean, why you is know, it so hard for us to do that? Why is it so hard for us as human beings to be honest about the thing, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable? Why is that? Yeah, I, I think that I think in some regards, and I, I haven't lived anywhere else, but I think in some regards, I see it as a Western problem. It's a, it is clearly an American issue um, mm-hmm. because we have we've been socialized to believe that we're so strong and any sign of weakness is not a sign of any sign of vulnerability makes you weak. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that vulnerability is a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of strength. We have to, again, that you talk about this notion of being radical. I think we have to flip that thing um, and, and, and subvert it and say that, you know, really this notion of being vulnerable is indeed a strength. It, it, it indeed taps me into who I really am. It gets me closer to, dare I say, my the, the spirit that lives within me. You know, yeah. um, I, I think. That, what role I, does faith play for you in your own personal oh, journey? Wow. Wow. I mean, as you as you think about you've you've been vulnerable, and you said I used to believe, and now I believe. I would imagine that if you were being vulnerable, you probably had some. I used to believe about white folks stuff. I used to believe about my folks stuff. Yes. I think we probably all could say that. So what role has faith and that spiritual life played in your radical inclusion journey? Yeah. I mean, 
because it, you know that's a really good question justin because at the end of the day i am a man of faith i do believe in a higher power mm-hmm. um and if i believe in a higher power how can i not then believe in the man and woman that's looking right across from me how can i not believe in the if i believe the spirit lives in me then that spirit must live in them too that's right you know what i mean and so yeah. and and if i can see the good in me that I must be able to see the good in them. And so that's where my faith has helped me in regards to, you, you know, seeing. And then also, um, I, I think I'm smart enough to know that I can't put God in the box that, you know, there's more than one way to get to New York. You know what I mean? I can't just say that you, it has to be my faith and the way I look at things. And you got to look at it the way I look at it. it again, that and from my understanding, that would me be that would be me limiting limiting in God. That you know what I mean. That's only from my <laughs> my uh, limited view of the world. You know what I mean. Saying that uh, you know yeah. my faith is the only faith that there should be. But you no know, faith has really been an instrumental part of my life. Like I said earlier, I think we were off air as well. That my mom is a Baptist preacher in South Carolina. Right. You know, I grew up in the church Um, and one of the one of the one of the themes that have ran through my life, though, is this 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 walk, this, you know, my mom would always say, (laughs) um, just keep going to church, baby. (laughs) Right. Something's going to happen to you sooner or later. This notion and I've equated that to in the in the equity world, there are no quick fixes. It can't happen overnight. One of my teachers, uh, Father Thomas Hopko, blessed memory, he used to always say, um, go to church, say your prayers, remember God, everything else will work itself out. You know? And I think there's a lot of truth. You know, for me, it's not just because I, I know we have people listening from other faith traditions, but most faith traditions, not all of them, but most of them also have this idea of metanoia or turning around, or we call it in English repentance. Yeah. And I think if you don't have some context through which you get to work out your stuff yeah. and turn around and go another direction. I think it's very hard to, yeah. to embrace radical inclusion and equity just on a self-interest basis. Yeah. I think there's got to be that relationship. We're made for that interconnectedness, aren't we? That's right. You know, you cannot, and you know, you, you speak about one of my um, pet peeves and, that sometimes people say, you know, things like, um, you know, Mr. So-and-so is a self-made man. <laughs> There's no such thing. Right. You, it, nobody makes themselves. In other words, people need people and we're all connected. I hate that in the nonprofit world. Sometimes you'll see social service agencies will call their programs self-sufficiency programs because it sounds really good to a donor or something, right? Well, we're going to make him self-sufficient. He's not going to need you anymore. But in reality, we all always need each other. You know, we're always interdependent. I am your bootstraps and you are mine. There's no As such we thing. should be. As right. we should be. As we should be. Rodney, as we conclude, I want to ask you this question. I end every podcast with this. I want to know on a, on a practical level, if there are people listening who want to learn to lead with greater social impact themselves the way that you're trying to do, what are two or three practices or, or tips or something that you could offer that are practical that they could start doing right now in their own life, Rodney? Mm, like, you know, perhaps things that I do or, or things that right. I believe or hobbies that I participate in and things like that. Anything that you do that sharpens the saw, that moves the needle for you in this journey of becoming a more impactful leader, particularly in, in your area of emphasis. Yeah. What are a couple of things you do? Well, a couple of things I do, you know, you know, the first thing that popped in my mind when you said that is, is a philosophy that I believe in this notion of servant leadership. And and we were just talking about faith. And when you asked me about that, you know, and I'm not a theologian, so please, for the theologians out there, please forgive me if I botched this up. But I, I just remember um, there's a portion in somewhere in the Bible where you know, the figure in Christianity that we know as the Christ, Jesus, um, uh, washed the feet of those 
that he was leading. You know, he was the leader. And so it, that flipped the paradigm of leadership on his head in some regards that the leader would get down and watch the feet of those that he was serving. So it, it, it speaks to this idea of servant leadership. Hmm. And I'd like to believe that I try to follow that principle that those that I am um, charged with leading, I don't see me as leading per se. I see me as serving those individuals and in that um, it is my job to perhaps wash their feet. <laughs> mm. um, and that's, that's, uh, that's how I look at it. But then, you know, a big thing that I do is, you know, Justin, and you can, this will resonate with you um, because this is why we're here today. I'm in community with people who, who are on this trek with me. Right. You know, I, I surround myself with people um, who are, on that journey as well. And I actively want to be a part of people who, you know, who are, I would describe as hope mongers. Hmm. People who hope mongers, hope mongers. We talk about hate mongers all the time in society. Okay. All right. But I don't, we don't talk about hope mongers enough. Yeah. In another interview, you described your new position. You said you're the chief hope officer. The chief hope officer. That's okay. I, I see myself as the chief hope officer of an institution because, you know, one of the guiding principles of equity is that you have to maintain hope in the face of brutal facts. Hmm. Well, we borrowed that from our brother, uh, Brian Stevenson. In the, in say that again real slow, because that yeah. I mean, not just this conversation, but even our whole nation right now needs to hear that. Go ahead. Maintain hope in the face of brutal facts. Hmm. There's some brutal facts. And in fact, there are people probably and I'm not probably still protesting in, in Philadelphia because a young man was killed a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people protesting, I think in Texas right now, because there was a young man who was brutally beaten in the front of his, his house. And he yeah. was coming home as a 17 year old kid running to the door, yelling for his father the whole time that he's being tased. You know, those are brutal facts that yeah. we're dealing with. There, it, there, there's brutal facts that, there are some people that are upset right now with the outcome of the election for whatever reasons. Those are brutal facts that we have to deal with. But we wouldn't be the country that we are. We wouldn't be the people that we are if we didn't have hope, if we if we gave up. In fact, the people who are out there protesting, that I think that is an act of hope because they hope that one day justice will be served. You know, the work that you do, Justin, you 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 begin to talk about truce avenue and hoping that one day it will not be the dividing line, but the line that brings us together. Your work mm -hmm. is steeped in hope. I mean, mm -hmm. that's who we are. Again, we are hope mongers. So for so other so one hope monger to another, and Thank the other you. and the other hope mongers out in 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 uh, podcast land is listening to us. Uh, surround yourself with other hope mongers. And I think that if, if enough of us begin, and, and what, what I know about hopeful people, Justin, is that there's not this whimsical thing up in the pie in the sky thing. I think hopeful right. people are people of action. Mm -hmm. hopeful, people, hopeful people recognize that, that we will face barriers. Yep. We I think entrepreneur is a hope monger, right? I mean, you, you see something as possible before it's possible and Absolutely. you work at it until it is, until it's reality. Absolutely. Yeah. So I say, you know, surround yourself by, with hope mongers because that's what I do. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Rodney, for uh, coming on the podcast today, for sharing so much. Thank you for sharing this idea of radical inclusivity. Thank you for the work that you're doing as the vice president of access and engagement at William Jewell. Thank you for the work that you're doing with your wife, Stephanie, at Sophic Solutions Group. I'm going to put that up there, sophicsolutionsgroup.com. Yes. Definitely, if your organization is interested in going deeper in these issues, definitely need to look up Rodney and Stephanie and Sophic Solutions. Check them out. We've used them at Reconciliation Services and plan on continuing to partner in the future. Rodney, is there anything else today that you want to make sure that we get across to everybody before we sign off? Well, uh, you know, as an educator, I, this is one of my what, what I close with in most conversations I have um, as an academician, as an educator. Of course, I would be pushing and um, endorsing education. Mm. Um, I often say, you know, get educated. 
but don't let school get in the way. Right. <laughs> so that's good. As an academician, believe it, you know, but we got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere, right? But a lot of education that I have did not take place in the school. You know, it took place with me seeking out individuals, guidance, mentorship, reading things that I didn't get a chance to read when I was in school. So again, well, thank you for being, thank you for being one of those leaders and those instructors in my life and in Kansas city and Dr. Rodney Smith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the social leader podcast. I really appreciate your time tonight, sir. Totally. My pleasure, man. Absolutely. Hang with me while we wrap up friends. Well, we've had another episode of the Social Leader Podcast, and I have a huge favor to ask of you. If you were inspired by the things that you heard Dr. Rodney talking about tonight and the things that we talk about on this podcast, if you want to help other people learn to lead with greater social impact, please, wherever you're listening to this podcast, hit the like button, hit the share button. If you're on YouTube, follow us and hit the icon, the bell icon, so you know every time that we go live. We want to get this message of social leadership and hope out to as many people in the universe as we can. And just like Rodney said, if you want to learn and go a little bit deeper, don't let school get in the way. But if you want a little bit of education, we have an awesome course. It's at thesocialleader.org. That's our brand new e-course where you can learn all about these things that Rodney's been talking about. You can lay that solid foundation in your leadership lane so that you can become that servant leader, that awesome leader that Rodney's talking about and that he exemplifies so well. So again, friends, thank you so much for joining me on this episode, the 32nd episode of the Social Leader Podcast. And until next time, let's together learn to lead with greater social impact. See you next time. <music>